waiting for the midnight sky to burn. Welcome to Empower Outdoors Podcast. I'm your host, Allie Jutine. And I'm your co-host, Phil Stepp. We're here today talking to Gabriella Hoffman, who is a media strategist living in the metro, the D.C. metro area, and she's also an avid hunter and angler, and um, we're really excited to have her on the show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Allie and Phil. Excited to chat with you guys. Yeah, so... We know that you you live out in the D.C. area, and um, you know, tell us a little about a bit about how you you know kind of came to be out there and where you kind of started. Sure. Well, I'm primarily from Southern California, where I was born and raised, and despite some of the preconceived notions about California and how crazy it is, there are a lot of outdoor opportunities. In fact. At one point in time, it was rated the most outdoorsy state in all of the United States. I'm not sure if it still has that mantle to claim to, but I grew up primarily saltwater fishing and also freshwater fishing in Southern California. So during summers, I would tag along with my father to Dana Point Harbor, which is one of the uh, marinas you could go fishing from in Southern California and Orange County, where I'm from. There's also Newport Beach and Long Beach in LA, and then there was San Diego. So it was one of the hotspot uh, marinas for fishing. So during the summers, I would tag along with my father for two for Tuesdays. And it would be like, you purchase one ticket, you get the other half off, or I believe it was the other one free. So I was able to tag along then. And during family vacations, I was able to discover fishing. And I would say my first exposure to fishing was when I was eight years old. And I got really seriously into it when I hooked in my biggest fish to date, um, which is almost as big as a striper I caught last year in the Chesapeake Bay, but I caught an 8.9 pound catfish that was two, 28 and a half inches long in uh, one of the ponds in Southern California in Santa Ana, Anaheim, near Disneyland. I'm not too far. From- wow. Yeah. So being 12 years old, Memorial Day weekend, catching a catfish practically by myself. And my dad was chatting with <laughs> someone else against the pond and I was screaming and I was like, dad, what do I do? I need your help. So I was like reeling it in. I was like wrestling this catfish for, I don't know, it was maybe five to seven minutes, maybe 10, closer to that 10 10 minute mark. And my dad recalls seeing my eyes like light up so much at the sight of that catfish and holding it. And I'm still searching for this photo to this day. I'm not simply devising a fishtail. This did in fact happen. (laughs) But uh, I guess that fish in recent memory, it was over, goodness, 15 years ago now, that really did kind of solidify my love of fishing and I caught many species over the years uh trout bluegill sunfish uh bass in California I didn't really uh get a lot of like different species I got like some interesting species but nothing noteworthy I caught like one say uh Garibaldi fish which is illegal to have so I threw it back of course but it's a beautiful like orange fish and I've caught some unique species there but I've I believe I've you know, since moving to the East Coast, and, and primarily what drew me to the East Coast was my job in politics. So there's a lot of crossover between the outdoor industry and politics, and I think more people are seeing that now and are kind of jumping on it for a multitude of reasons. So being in a particular political movement, which is friendly to firearms, uh, fishing, and hunting, I was able to meet people who took up shooting sports and hunting subsequently. And for me, moving out here, 
I was able to realize that there were these opportunities to go shooting in a range or to go hunting not too far from a metropolitan area. Because in California, the opportunities to either possess firearms or go to the range, uh, you are very limited because it's either very expensive or you have no idea where the heck to go or it's heavily regulated. And so out here in Virginia, I realized since moving here about six years ago, there were opportunities to go shooting at a range. The NRA is maybe about 25, 30 minutes from my house headquarters. There are lots of ranges here, a lot of former military who teach classes, veterans, other experts, other ballistics experts, a lot of people here because we have a lot of military bases. It's the nation's capital, of course, and people don't realize that there are a lot of opportunities to not only do shooting sports, fishing as well, but also hunting uh, not too far. So my job brought me out here and I took it upon myself to learn more about uh, shooting sports And I think I picked up a gun for the first time when I was 19, and that was in 2010. And then I started hunting last fall, but I was contemplating it seriously for about uh, two to three years because I just saw that when fishing gets it gets too cold for fishing, you might as well go hunting. (laughs) And there are four (laughs) things too. So working in politics, uh, I got to interact with a lot of firearms experts. I went to Shot Show for the first time in 2015. And I've always been curious about the misunderstandings or the preconceived notions that people have about firearms. And having gone through the journey myself, obviously it may be biased when I write, but I want to show people that there's a lot of misunderstandings with how people operate firearms, the certain organizations that exist out there to promote Second Amendment rights and kind of counteract that. And I was a- I've been able to be published in um, some notable publications and, and conservative politics and also mainstream publications too, like The Hill. Uh, which offer a variety of views to be published. So I've had the opportunity, and in Virginia too, the, the state papers, the Richmond Times-Dispatch and the Bristol Herald-Courier. So I've been able to not only re- uh, reach out to audiences that have similar views, but also reach wider audiences with people who differ from my views or may not entirely be in sync. And so for me, I was never really against firearms, but I wanted a greater understanding. And, and now that I'm a gun owner and a concealed herring gun permit holder, I certainly try to educate people on that and, and being afforded the opportunity to write uh, as well to supplement my activism uh, was really, I would say, uh, well-rounded for me. And after I became self-employed about two years ago, I had now had more of an opportunity to, to learn about and finally pursue hunting. And I'm not an expert in hunting by any means. I'm still having far much to learn about it, but I've been pretty successful for, for a beginner with harvesting pheasants, um, chucker, quails, and then some some ducks as well, too. I got a ruddy duck. So I harvested a few things, and I want to take that approach really slowly uh, and not really do more than I can handle. And I don't want to simply just showcase my hunting journey for social media likes or comments or clicks. I really want to kind of show people that you can be an urban area resident and do this and learn about it wholeheartedly and fullheartedly and come about it from a authentic uh, manner rather than just doing it, trying to attract attention, whether good or bad. And so that's kind of my whole basic journey in a nutshell uh, for that. But yeah, moving to the East Coast, ironically enough, allowed me to pursue more outdoor activities and actually to hone my fishing skills as well. Because with high school, when I was very studious and then college, I was always so busy with studying and then honor society and tennis and all these other commitments and and internships and and concurrently working and getting scholarships. So I was just so busy and I didn't get to fish as much. And now that I'm a young professional in the Washington DC metro area, 
I can do these a lot more feasibly, not, especially now that I'm self-employed, but I started to do more of it um, just as I was able to kind of ease on into East Coast living. So it, it's been very interesting and I would recommend it to anyone to try to uh, change your surroundings if you want to learn the outdoors or if you're very outdoorsy and you're not sure how to navigate an urban outpost and how to find opportunities to study your area and to do it because we should be doing it in more urban areas uh, just to keep our, keep our sanity and to have fun too. And it's possible than most people believe. Well, and that kind of brings me to another one of my questions. The, you know, you were saying about, you know, getting involved within a metro area. How, what would your advice be to somebody who's living in a city who wants to get involved to the, in, to the outdoors and hunting and fishing? Where would their first step be? If they go to takemefishing.org, it's a project of the Recreational Boating and Fishing Foundation, and they have a whole list of places. You could plug in your zip code, and from there you're able to find opportunities uh, afforded to you to go fishing. I don't know if they've changed it since. I haven't looked at this map feature, but in the past they, you were able to search your zip code and figure out what opportunities were near you. If I'm not mistaken, given their new website designer since changing their website, I believe now you can search by your state and your locality and see what rivers and waterways and fisheries are closest to you. So with respect to fishing, I would say uh, check out takemefishing.org and also your local uh, Department of Natural Resources or Game and Inland Fisheries website. If you're new to the area, more than, than, uh, more than likely they will have information to waterways closest to you. They'll put a map, show locations, information, address, tell you the species that reside there. So... I think those two sources are really critical for figuring out how to navigate the fisheries near you. Or if you just do a random Google search fishing in your area, if you're looking for a specific charter, if it's related to saltwater or off inshore fishing or offshore fishing, that's also very helpful too. Uh, trying to network with people who are influencers in the industry in your locality is also really good. They may point you in the right direction. As for hunting, it's a little more challenging because it's not exactly like fishing, but it's navigating the process isn't as complicated as you would think it would be. It could be just as simple as fishing, but it, they are two very different activities, but because they're, they're both rooted in conservation, the means to, to do hunting is very similar to that of fishing. It's a little more complicated, but for me, it was being able to befriend uh, policy people in the DC area who went hunting, which sounds like a far-fetched thing to think that people in Washington, D.C. or in the area surrounding it, go fit hunting and fishing, especially hunting, but they do. And so I befriended a few people who are very keen on it. And actually, one of my friends who really kind of helped me with it locally is um, my friend Cyrus Baird from the Council to Advance Hunting and Shooting Sports. And his goal is, and his company's goal is to attract new people to hunting and shooting sports. And so they, they work with uh, various hunting and fishing groups, primarily hunting and shooting sports groups, to promote R3, which is recruitment, retention, and reactivation. So relying and leaning on someone like him was very helpful. Uh, just talking to various different friends I have made in the hunting and shooting sports industry and also checking my uh, game and inland fisheries area to learn about uh, hunting opportunities and what process I have to do. And I primarily did it through the online course because I'm not going to sit in a class for eight hours and uh, <laughs> do classroom style uh, lectures and learning anymore. I, I've, I'm above that since I did that enough of that in college and grade school. <laughs> so I, I, so, and I know people yeah. have their opinions about online learning or the hunter's education course online. 
and and I always tell people like just because you learned online and I believe this too because I learned online doesn't mean I'm an expert I'm trying to do more in the field and I plan to do more skeet shooting and more preparation long-range shooting in the future because you have to supplement that um, if you did not take an in-person class or do subsequent training related to that or some seminars but I did it online because it's convenient for me and it wasn't that expensive and a lot of it was overlapping from shooting sports coursework I had taken when I got in my uh, concealed handgun permit. So a lot of the knowledge was familiar, but it extended to conservation, the various different species, knowing more about the mechanics going into hunting. So the online course I would recommend for anyone in urban areas to do. And then if they have the time and the resources, they can take in-person classes or uh, lean on their game and inland fisheries or DNR to do in-person seminars. They can be a little expensive. So the online route may be a little easier and then finding people who can teach you to hone your skills. Uh, if you've already learned the basics, that's always very good. Spending time in the field, just ha what I did actually, what I consider my first so-called hunting trip was not me really hunting, but I went beagling, which is a very popular thing. So beagles are obviously hound dogs and they're used for hunting smaller game. And so I tagged along with my neighbor and my dad was with me and we went beagling. It was the winter of 2016. And what you do is you obviously dress in the same attire, camo, et cetera, or at least have comfortable shoes, provided weather, et cetera, et cetera. And so we saw these beagles who had monitors attached to them. It was an interesting sight, howling and, you know, running around. But they were trying to target and find rabbits. And these were younger beagles. So a lot of them didn't really have a acute sense of smell for the rabbits. I think the rabbit outsmarted them. I remember seeing the rabbit running and they were like a hundred yards away following it shortly. So, so the rabbit was able to, outsmart them. so this was, I was able to see hunting from a different dynamic because in Maryland and Virginia, uh, it's obviously a, it was colonial America. So people still kind of hunt like they would a little bit in colonial times with hounds or horses uh, fox hunting, things of that sort. So a lot of those traditions are still alive in uh, these two states. And so seeing beagling and kind of shadowing people who do a type of hunting or a different style of hunting, whether or not it's involved, you know, it involves firearms or, or dogs chasing animals and then you harvesting it or taking the shot. But I think shadowing a hunt and seeing what goes into it is also very good for someone, especially if they're in an urban area. I've been doing that. I've been trying to shadow. I have People take me on trips, obviously, and I learn even if we don't harvest anything. So when I went turkey hunting recently, back in April, I wasn't able to get a turkey because the turkey was in the opposite field behind us rather than in front of us. But hearing it gobble was super awesome. So uh, and, and like I said, this beagling experience or something simple like that, even just tagging along but not taking a shot and being a keen observer of how hunting goes on. I think that's a, a good, perfect step in addition to studying the rules and regulations related to conservation and hunting in your state, leaning on people who are more experienced, could be your friends, significant other, uh, professionals, wildlife biologists, people who deal with this on, or conservation officers. So there's a multitude of sources you can do. And I think uh, instead of going into a full-fledged, start slowly and build your way up and definitely shadow uh, people who are hunting if you want to get a feel for it. I think that brings up some pretty good, pretty good points, especially for the newer hunter out there. Um, you're talking about shadowing and getting really getting the experience of it, and I think 
not just finding where to hunt it, because if you have the right resources, you can figure out where to hunt. But for the new hunter, there's always going to be naysayers out there that put down the lifestyle. So for those who aren't really, um, you know, sure how to defend hunting, just starting out, you know, hey, I'm Phil. I'm just getting into hunting. I'm 33 years old. And everybody at work says hunting's bad. Chasing, uh, do- chasing with dogs is bad. It's inhumane. Um, for someone as politically involved with, as you are and someone with your experiences of being a new hunter, what would you say, um, how would you say you should go about defending hunting when you're new? Because you don't really know as much about it when you're new, and that can kind of be a, a hang-up for people. I've done this with every political thing I've done. I've had to study what my opponents believe and, and uh, polish my views, but I think for the new hunter, it's very similar. You can apply political battle knowledge to to your hunting knowledge and what you'd want to do essentially is read up on the facts and say you know i may be new to this but i think you should have an open mind about this and see how much money uh hunters and anglers provide back to conservation because people don't know that it's not a disproportionate amount but i would say the bulk of conservation funding is allocated from licenses fishing tackle archery equipment uh, so basically equipment and tools used in hunting and fishing so, and shooting sports supply about 60% of conservation funding in this country from the Pitt and Robertson Act. So that's a basic fact. It's not fake news or a, a manipulated fact. It's on the Fish and Wildlife Service website. You can go to the Department of Interior, click on the Fish and Wildlife Service, and you'll find it there. And numerous places and, and publications who even don't like hunting have stated that. And if you read, uh, actually, I would recommend people watch a skunk bear video from NPR and NPR is not one of the most friendliest of sources for hunting, but one of their uh, commentators actually did a very good video explaining and breaking down why the decline of hunters will actually precipitate into the decline of hunting. And we, we know, and those of us who've worked in the industry have seen a decline over the years. And in this last uh, fish and wildlife service report, there, it was noted that I think we lost, I forget the exact amount of numbers that we lost in terms of hunters, but we lost a few million hunters, uh, according to this last report. And so I think the facts are on hunter's side. You have to, and obviously you're going to deal with people who are never going to change their views. They're going to think you're slaughtering animals for fun, bloodlust, whatever. But I think there are some people in the middle, uh, I think what is it, is like 5% who are very gung-ho about hunting, 5% who are very gung-ho against hunting. And I think there is that 80 to 90% in the middle who are either open-minded or ambivalent, but possibly open-minded to learning more about it. And so I think presenting people with the facts and explaining why people do this, it's not simply to kill. It's a lifestyle. It's about harvesting your own meat from field to plate. It's about enjoying time with friends, even if you don't harvest anything. It's about enjoying a sunset, a sunrise, uh, sharing jokes, sharing stories with other people learning from others. It's a whole uh, full-fledged experience. It's not just the harvesting of an animal. It's, it's comprehensive. Uh, it doesn't always turn into results. And it's a multi-pronged kind of thing. And, and you have to build upon it with each year. It's not just one and done, one-time activity and you're done. Some people, obviously, who fall out of hunting or fishing, if they don't like it, they're not going to do it anymore. But it's a lifestyle. And I think that has to be communicated. And the fact that Hunters and anglers are footing the bill when a lot of these loudmouths, anti-hunters, scream about how awful it is or they hold uh, conservation funding hostage. I think because they're so irrational in their speech and, and their rhetoric is so unhinged and, and very caustic, 
I think there's an opportunity for hunters to go about this calmly because we don't want to resort to their tactics and be reactionary like they are. But I think as new hunters or people who really want to kind of counterbalance uh, the perception of hunting in this country, they have to do about it calmly. They have to use the facts. And there are lots of facts, like I said, out there uh, pointing to the fact that hunters and anglers and shooting sports enthusiasts contribute the most induced supply that and why the regeneration and continuation of participation is needed to not only continue those uh, pastimes in this country, but also to continue those conservation dollars uh, being pumped and supplied and, and, you know, promoted throughout the cycle. Well, look at what's look at what's happening in Africa right now. The entire continent of Africa is basically under fire for um, you know trophy hunting, and with yeah yeah without big game hunting or call it whatever you want trophy hunting, sport hunting, whatever you want to call it. Without that type of hunting, exactly, there is no con- conservation. There's no real conservation in Africa. And what what really irritates me, and I've talked about this in past episodes, is when we have sportsmen and women um, who select the styles of hunting, fishing, shooting, gun types, gun styles that they think are okay and aren't okay versus all of us standing together. Because what the antis do is they'll try to pick us apart one by one until there's pretty much nothing left. They start with trophy hunting. Then they go to running deer with dogs. Then they go to AR-15s. So it, 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 all, it, all, it all comes together. And anybody who doesn't think that an AR-15 is a great beginner's and, and hunting gun doesn't know anything about guns. So, you know, there's so many different things like that that all come together. And it's so true great because I've there. heard in my initial journey, and I've heard even expert season hunters say this too. They say, well, there's a particular way of hunting you have to do. And I'm like, no, you don't. Like, I'm friends. I think, you know, yeah. So uh, if you know Jessica Byers, follow her arrow. She does a lot. Nothing like that's controversial or unethical, but she has told me, and I've actually agreed with her in private saying this, but she got complaints of people claiming you shouldn't eat a largemouth bass or you shouldn't hunt high fencing, do high fence hunting. And I'm like, yeah, you know, there are different ways in different states. And obviously, depending upon where you are, like if you're in Florida, they don't recommend you eat bass. Virginia will eat bass. It depends on your mood, if the fishery is good. But bass is not bad to eat. I know that's controversial to say, but some people. (laughs) I'll eat bass any day of the week. But yeah, I think everyone has different, and they'll tell, yeah, like people will say, well, yep. we hear a lot of aunties and a lot of especially people who support gun control say, well, how can you defend yourself with an AR-15? How can you go hunting? This is a military style weapon, firearm. And I'm like, I have military friends who've said this is like nothing in comparison to the high tech, like ballistics that they use for combat. So again, it's, it's people not knowing nomenclature, not right. realizing that there are different ways to hunt. Like in Virginia, like I said, I probably would not go dog hunting unless if it's like a dog retrieving a bird from waterfowl or upland bird hunting. And that's fine. But I don't think I would take a dog with me bear hunting or deer hunting. Some people do in Virginia, if it is still legal, which I believe it is. Uh, But in the South, that's that's pretty common. But uh, yeah, there are people who will tell you, you can't do a certain thing. And with respect to big game hunting, there are a lot of misconceptions with respect to that. And I thought the trophy documentary that was released earlier this year actually did a decent job of highlighting that it would be more preferable to have managed controlled, limited legal hunting of these wild games or big game species, the big five or giraffes and whatnot, rather than poachers unilaterally coming in and depleting the whole uh, resource and the whole species, which I would prefer that. Like I would rather people manage the hunting and regenerate and, and there be private farms to 
raise these animals to release them back to the wild, much like what one guy was, a South African farmer was doing with respect to one species of the rhino. And I think there are a lot of misconceptions. I know it goes back to the fact that this lady killed a giraffe about a year ago and, and everyone was so up in arms about it. And for me, like, I try to think about things rationally. I'm like, I know she didn't simply kill it for bloodlust. And she says that she gave the 200 pounds or so of it. They ate a little bit and then they gave the rest to the villagers. And I believe she did it for those kinds of reasons. And on the surface, it may look scary. Like, why is she doing this killing like giraffes or elephants or this or that? And to the untrained eye or to the untrained ear, it sounds really grotesque because they just don't understand that conservation model. And it could be applied to predator species like it, they are here in the United States with the mountain lion, with bears, uh, wolves, other predator species that could pose a threat to livelihood. So people in Yellowstone in the Midwest or the, um, the, the West, I would say, the Western states more so, will complain that their livestock's, livestock's livelihood is under threat because of wolves, uh, coyotes. Uh, and other similar predator species. And people forget that these wild animals, despite the Disneyfication of wildlife <laughs> in this country, they're very dangerous. Like, you can't go up to them thinking they're going to be nice and not try to eat you, especially if it's a provoked bear in Alaska or a polar yep. bear in Canada, like one gentleman was killed, shielding off his kids from a polar bear. And I don't know if he was taunting the bear, what exactly he was doing, but this polar bear ate this guy not too long ago in some village in Canada, because again, they're wild creatures. So in Africa, with this dynamic in terms of big game species, in this documentary and what you see with most people who pursue big game hunting and, and the, the conservationists they work with, the wildlife officers to combat poachers, they would rather that uh, someone take care of a lion, let's say an older lion that's about to expire, or a giraffe that poses a threat with you know stomping, taking away food, or other predator species who eat livestock in Africa, they have those similar threats with butt from lions uh, and other predatory species like people do with mountain lions, with wolves, etc., cetera, um, herding cattle or sheep or whatnot in the Western part of the United States. So it's an interesting dynamic. And though, while there may be a contrast in terms of the perception of, of those species in Africa versus North America, or particularly the United States, uh, there are predator species and if your life is on the line or your livelihood is on the line, you need to do something within legal means to control certain predator species. And in Africa, the big game species, the big five, can pose a threat to people's livelihoods, especially their uh, food sources. So it's just a matter of understanding that culture right. and how, it, how, how people thrive there. And you talk to a lot of the locals in Africa, and they're very grateful that these wealthy Americans or Canadians or whoever, Europeans... They come in, they pay a lump sum of money for a license and for a guided hunt to get these so-called big game animals. And from there, they get their resources replenished. Uh, they ward off certain predators. They can receive the meat of the animals harvested. And it's a, and it's, it's, it's a win-win for people there. And I think just the media and others, especially in the animal rights versus animal welfare sector, they just want to completely erode what it means, the conservation model, not really look into the nuances of it, and actually show that hunters are much better than poachers. The two cannot be conflated with one another. And it's just a matter of studying and reading. And even National Geographic wrote about this last November, 
there's an article, I can't recall the exact title, but if you Google it, Net Geo 2017 Trophy Hunting, uh, you'll find similar articles, even from people who would not even agree with this, arguing that it's far better for managed hunts to occur legally rather than poaching t- to completely wipe out species. So it's just a matter of understanding. For me personally, I don't think I could ever get a big game species. I would prefer things that are more edible. Could be an antelope, uh, an elk, uh, things of that sort, which I think are more edible or bare. But I don't think I could ever harvest giraffe or wine. But I do understand why people do harvest them in the legal fashion, conservation fashion that they do. And and I think there are more nuances and there are right. groups out there that do exist, like Safari Club, to kind of shed light on that and showcase that it's not just out of bloodlust. It's not simply just to erode the species. Uh, it's it's subsistence and, and uh, sustainable hunting. You take a little bit to preserve for the long term. And, and just because you don't want to go shoot a giraffe or a lion – or, or whatever it might be doesn't mean that you have to be against it either. There's a lot of kind of huntings that there's a lot of kinds of hunting that I don't really care to do, uh, but that doesn't mean that I'm against someone that does. Like and that. hunters should be embraced. If you go f- if, uh, fly fishing is not the best way to go fishing, some may argue. And I, I was actually talking to people at ICAST last week. I had a few friends right. who said, you know, I love fly fishing, but there's an elitist elitism that it teams with. And I said, you know, yeah, I felt that way when I took certain classes to learn how to fly cast and fly tie. And it's kind of true. It is a little bit elitist, especially here in D.C., but that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it or people telling you that you have to fish this way exactly shouldn't uh, prevent you from trying it. I, I'm fine with bait casting, fly fishing, spin casting, uh, trolling for the bottom, whatever fishing you do, as long as you don't do it unethically, you're fine. Like what they do in Alaska with uh, hooking at the gills with salmon, that's not ethical. But if your style is bait caster and you catch a nice bass on a live bait or a Senko bait or whatever, as long as you're doing it ethically and you're truthful about how you catch it and give proper attribution for products you use, you're perfectly fine. And same with hunting. If you're hunting predator species like hogs or uh, squirrels or raccoons, I know people actually do that in Virginia too. And so whatever, big or small, if you're doing it ethically, you're paying the license fees, uh, you're going to consume it yourself and you're not going to take more than your lot, I think all types of hunting and fishing should be embraced. It's a very nuanced kind of sport, both of those activities. So you have to understand those nuances rather than think it's just a black and white kind of uh, dichotomy with if it, this being the right and then therefore this being wrong. So I think people have to expand beyond that dichotomy that my way is right, your way is wrong, and see that different regions have different customs, different ways of fishing, different ways of hunting, and that's the beauty of this country. We can have different methods and still have similar results and still enjoy those pastimes. Yeah, exactly. Um, with with hunting and conservation, you have a podcast that you're, you're going to be launching in the fall. Is that correct? Yes, I will be launching something uh, in the fall, a podcast, where I will be exploring uh, outdoor opportunities in my metro area and kind of uh, allow it to expand to people wanting to discover or polish their hunting and love of hunting and fishing in urban areas. But yes, it's, it's a really cool project. And if you follow me on social media, you'll see previews of it soon. I'll gradually start to unveil it and uh, uh, let things come out there. But yes, I'll be launching that in sometime in September, maybe later August. I have to see what my, what my schedule is like, but I've actually just rebooted my Sports Women Out of No series because I had to take a little break from that just to focus on my business. 
and client work. And now I felt like it was a good opportunity to restart that. So I'll be having uh, an episode tomorrow, actually, on uh, July 18th, around 7 or 8 p.m. with a employee of the Virginia Game and Inland Fisheries, who is a fellow SIOPA member with me. Her name is Emily George. So I'm going to be doing that, profiling more women. My new podcast will have both men and women, young and old, but I'm going to talk to the storytellers, uh, government officials, employees, maybe some politicians. We'll see what happens there. But uh, yeah, I will, when the time comes, I'll reveal it. And I think people will be excited to learn about it. It's very different from, I think, a lot of the other outdoor podcasts. I really want to sink into things. I'm going to have some uh, podcasts without guests where I could explain legislation or explain kind of the nuances behind hot button topics like public lands or uh, the modern fish act. So I want it to be a educational format in addition to offering uh, guests a platform to communicate their uh, things or business. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's a great idea. People need that. The legislation around hunting, fishing and shooting sports is, is complicated. I think um, some groups will kind of sound the alarm in a very reactionary way. So I want to kind of, have a step back for something as heated as like public lands or something kind of controversial in that nature and break it down for people. Because I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what is multi-use and what is this. And then for other issues about like, should you allow Sunday hunting? I know some people are very divided over that or uh, should, can you reform the antiquities act and, and have it so that uh, what other jurisdiction is this or that and, and, and all that. So I think um, there, since I live very close and I've been following politics and I do follow outdoor policy very closely, I'm kind of going to shed my light or shed a light, I should say, on those issues, offer a nuanced perspective and kind of counteract maybe what some groups say in our industry that could be a little alarmist and uh, kind of confuse people. So I want to do that and uh, be fair to all views because we have a lot of different views in the conservation circles. We have people of different political backgrounds. And I think like going back to what you said about one way of hunting or fishing, I think there are multiple views that should be heard um, with respect to controversial issues, uh, even related Absolutely. to public lands use and, uh, and other issues like that. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Um, do you have, this is a little fun, fun way to end it, but what would be your, your dream hunt? <laughs> like I said, I want to be graduated <laughs> within three to five years time. I think I would like to do an elk hunt, possibly in Pennsylvania, because I think that's the easiest for me, the least expensive, I would say, option for me, because I don't have resources to go to New Mexico or Colorado at this point in time. But I think wanting to hunt uh, eastern elk would be really cool. I think they're of the Rocky Mountain strain anyway, but I would love to do that, and I think that would be cool. Possibly red stag. Uh, I think maybe next year my dad, once he gets his hunter's permit, he still needs to do that, but he wants me to, he wants to do like a big 65th birthday present going bear hunting here in Virginia, about an hour and a half away. We have some opportunities maybe next year. So I think, I think that'll be, that'll be the first Good. dream hunt Very that cool. I would like to do something related to elk, uh, red stag, or maybe even caribou in the future. But I think uh, red stag or elk are more feasible for me. Yeah. Well, if you figure out how to get a Pennsylvania elk tag, let me know. Yeah. And and I'll I'll go with you. <laughs> uh, yep. Yeah, if you if you uh, start wanting to get into elk hunting too, um, I would recommend 
and you can use Ali and I as a resource for this stuff too, but I would recommend uh, looking into the application process as soon as possible because a lot of states, it will take you many years to to uh, ever get drawn. Yep. Yeah. So you get preference points each each year, depending on the state. Um, and then, you know, that's why a lot of people don't get drawn because it's maybe their first year applying or, yep. or whatnot. Or maybe so. their 10th year, depending on the state. Right. But, um, but you said red stag too. That is a very similar uh, deer family species. Yep. A friend of mine went access deer hunting in Texas and she told me there's no real season for them. So I forgot to mention the act. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. Yeah, you could go. You could go there, or even a trip to Scotland. You would oh. be amazed at how inexpensive a hunting trip in Scotland is compared to a Rocky Mountain elk hunt. I want to go to Scotland I mean, so bad. Yeah, you can fly round trip out of New York or or Minneapolis or I'm sure the D.C. area to Scotland for you know under a thousand dollars, and a, a lot of these a lot of these hunts charge anywhere from two hundred to four hundred euros a day for a hunt, which is fractions. No, it's fractions compared to an elk hunt here. So just a little bit of advice for people out there too, if you have similar dreams, look into it early on. If you, you know, in the next five years, you want to go on one of these hunts, start looking. I will take that into consideration, but one step at a time. But I think that, what is it, like $10 to apply for a, uh, for, um, to, to, to submit your name into Pennsylvania. And then that obviously does not guarantee that you'll get it, but it's better than Kentucky's process. I think for out of state you have to pay like $800 even just to apply for that. I could be mis- misconstruing that. It's ridiculous. Yep. And usually it's re- usually it's refunded to you. So what I do for the Western states that I apply for is I have a credit card that's dedicated to applications. <laughs> so at, at any given time when my wife looked at that credit card, there would have been anywhere from $2,000 to $3,000 on it. However, all of them were refunded. You know, less the uh, application. Yeah, it fee. does get expensive, and and I think the expensive nature of hunting does kind of dissuade people from from going. So maybe there's a way we can fix all that. So in the grand scheme of things, there is. Yep, and your podcast uh, with the ideas you were just talking about that's going to be a great way to show people maybe that live in a inner city environment, um, help them do the do it yourself kind of thing and get out and do it on a on the, you know people that are kind of cheap like me i don't like spending a lot of money on it so yeah no it's uh yeah it's interesting but i think yeah i think pennsylvania's process is a little easier than kentucky's kentucky's like i said was just i was reading into that i was like what eight hundred dollars this is nuts and then yeah uh, in virginia we actually have a growing elk herd but it won't be for another maybe 10 to 15 years where there will even be tags drawn tennessee just started that where they rose goodness right. was it like six figures tennessee rose a lot of money for eight or ten if i'm not mistaken like a limited like less than a dozen uh elk permits that they released to the public so they raised a lot of money they awarded those tags to the people who won i think it was between six to twelve so there was a lot of money but yeah there some states nearby and on the east coast are doing it on a limited by limited case basis so it's, it's very interesting to see that. But yeah, in Virginia, there would be no way I will go elk hunting, probably realistically for another 10 to 15 years until we have a healthy herd. Well, hopefully that happens. Yeah. Thank you a lot for coming on the show yeah, today. Was, like, you're very interesting to listen to. You got, I mean, we could probably sit here for hours and talk about stuff. Whatever lot I can shed on a demystifying hunting from an urban setting standpoint, I'm happy to do so. And it's always a pleasure to talk amongst friends and and allies, so I appreciate you guys allowing me a platform to spout off on. 
Thanks for tuning in to Empower Outdoors Podcast. That was episode 13 with Gabriella Hoffman. 